Hey folks, what's up? It's David James Young here for another week of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. It is great to have you with us. Thanks so much for tuning in, downloading, streaming, checking this out in any way, shape or form. I don't know how you're uh, experiencing this. Perhaps uh, the person next to you on the bus is playing this really loudly and you can hear my voice. Hello, I'm really sorry for intruding on your life. I hope you can forgive me. Want to throw a uh, quick shout out to my boys in Tand Christ, who are going to be playing a show at Blackwire Records tomorrow night with uh, former guests of the show Burlap. Burlap will also be back at Blackwire on Sunday afternoon, playing a show with Massive Bicep, Home Burial, and Heads of Charm out of Melbourne. Both shows definitely worth getting along to. Also, some friends of the show will be playing at Small World Festival at Sydney Park on Saturday, uh, including Big White, All Our Exes Live in Texas, Spod, who will be fronting the AZDC cover band Bon Voyage, uh, Palms, and Dizzy Death Rays are all playing. So, if that is something that is of interest, there are still a few tickets left, so get in and among that shit. Okay, so... This is a really big week for this podcast, and it's a really big week uh, for me, uh, personally. I have been trying to get this particular gentleman on for months now. Probably since February or March, I've been trying to make this happen. And then, last month, we finally got the stars aligned, and we actually got to do it. This week's guest is Earthboy, a.k.a. Tim Levinson. Uh, the head of Elephant Tracks, a member of The Herd, and noted solo artist in his own right. In my opinion, one of the most important and most intelligent people in Australian music. I am really, really excited about this one. Tim doesn't do a bunch of interviews that much anymore, so I was really, really uh, stoked when he agreed to do this one, and I'm so happy with how it turned out. It's a really... Uh, candid and uh, personal uh, portrait of the the of his life and his music and uh, everything in between. I'm so so proud of this one. I genuinely think this is one of the best ones we've ever recorded, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. Some of you might not be into Australian hip hop. Like this is the first hip hop act that we've had on the podcast, and that's completely. Fine, I guess, but I would still really like you to check this one out. Uh, I think people can learn a lot from Tim, not only as a performer, but as a uh, a business owner and a father and a writer and a communicator and someone who just pushes and evolves ideas. That's so fucking important, man. That's something that needs to happen, and I think... Tim Earthy has, he's done an incredible job of that over his 15 year plus career. So yeah, I really, really hope that you guys enjoy this one and uh, hopefully I'll be getting a couple more people I've met uh, through the world of hip hop in on the podcast before too long. Next week on the podcast will be my first uh, of many podcasts that I recorded in Melbourne, and it will be with Andy Hayden. Andy Hayden is the uh, owner and founder of Poison City Records. 
He also used to play bass in A Death in the Family, and he currently plays bass in Freakwave. He is an absolute legend, and I am so, so excited that uh, that he agreed to be on the podcast with me, and uh, yeah, just talk about everything that's been going on with him over the last few years. So uh, yeah, that will be heaps and heaps of fun, but uh, yeah, I don't want to waste any more of your time. Let's get into it right now, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Tim Levinson, a.k.a. Earthboy. Hi everyone, I'm David Chen Jung, and all my friends are in bar bands. Today, I would like to introduce you to my friend, Earthboy. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, sir? Yeah, pretty good. Not too bad at all. That's good to hear. We are live from the Elephant Mansion. We're at the uh, Elephant Track Studios here in Marrickville. Uh, how long have you guys been out here? It's like pretty much since ET started? No, we were in a, uh, I guess, what is like a glorified uh, share house Yeah, right. Um, before this, which wasn't you know technically a share house it was actually there were little businesses but it was basically a uh, terrace kind of property um freestanding that people were all in different rooms so we yeah. were, elephant tracks was located in one room then we grew a bit and then we had to take the room next door and then we came here mm. and prior to that it was in kenny sabir's uh spare room yeah wow his place and yeah. then prior to that it was in a share house that he had you know, coming out of uni or, or when he was around uni. So we've always had pretty modest surroundings. Yeah. I mean, apart from the mansion, which, as you can see around you, is... Um, it's pristine, is, yeah. I mean, it's it's decked out with all the trimmings. It's. I, I didn't even know gold walls were, like, a thing in Australia, but you've definitely shown me that they are. Like, I, mm. I can barely look around. Like, there's so much shininess going on in my area, you mm. know? Well, there's a, we're an independent label, but there are certain kind of basic... Um, you know accessories that of we course. need to yeah you know you know we we definitely need to uphold those those <laughs> kind of the basics just just the necessities yeah <laughs> of course well you're getting that hermitude money now you know that's oh <laughs> uh, yeah yeah now it's platinum walls yeah exactly yeah. platinum walls <laughs> living the dream baby <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, now Tim we first met uh, I think about two maybe three years ago actually it was three years ago it was. The night that Elephant Tracks did the Dr. Zeus show at the Sydney Opera House at the Joan Sutherland oh, Theatre. Yeah. Mm. Um, that was actually, that was a fucking amazing night. Um, how, did that, how did that whole thing come about? I can't assume that was a, a thing where you, you and Kenny and the lot were just sitting around just going, you know what would be good? Cat in a hat. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I wish that we could take sole credit for it. Oh, of course. Ben from the Opera House, who we used to work with, when he was working at Inertia. And yeah, yeah. prior to that, he used to do these drum and bass parties called Moving Through Air, like back at the turn of the century. Sure. Right. Um, and I used to work at Fish Records in Newtown. Mm-hmm. So he used to come in and fly the joint. He, he was the one who came up with the idea with Jordan Bazaar, who do the graphic festival at yeah, Opera yeah. House. And they said, well, how about we, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could do some sort of musical reworking of Dr. Zeus? Mm-hmm. So they came to us and said, would you guys be open to it? And we were just reckless enough to do it. And I, I say that being that 
Well, I didn't think about it so much from an opportunity to play the Opera House, which, you know, that alone is is pretty fun, especially from a label point of view. But sure, yeah. I, I just love those ridiculous propositions mm. and challenges, and it gave us an opportunity to bring all of the label together, uh, some willingly, some of them we had to just poke and prod a bit, try and reimagine a bunch of our songs and write new ones. And, yeah, yeah. And everybody loves... Uh, so much about Dr. Zeus, and we learnt a lot course, about yeah. him along the way. So. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was it was one thing to come up with the idea. It was another thing to to get our heads around how we do it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And yeah, I guess now you can pass that on to your own kid as well. The the love of Dr. Zeus. Yeah, I think a lot of people came to that show. Well, you know, not a lot of people. Maybe mm. a, a small portion of the people came to the show just because it was at the Opera House and it sure, had Dr. Yeah. Zeus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So musical versions of Dr. Zeus. So mm. there were you know some grandparents bringing their their children along, and they're yeah. kind of like outraged halfway through the show as <laughs> Sky High is performing. Oh you know, God. Um, what did she do? She did Fox in Socks. Fox in Socks, that's right. <laughs> and to be fair, that was slightly terrifying. It was awesome, but it was a little terrifying. I mean, it, she is an amazing artist. Oh, yeah. And, and she did a... It's a fantastic... She's intense, Reworking yeah. of that song, but... Of that book. Yeah. But, yeah, terrifying to a four-year-old, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't too worried about that, actually, no. because you don't want people to walk away unhappy, but there's certain... Yeah. There's a certain kind of pleasure that you get from them. maybe it's a sadistic kind of pleasure but um it's a it's a pleasure that you get from going well we don't want to just sanitize these books into this you know wiggles like performance yeah, yeah you know, of we course wanted to yeah do something that was artistically uh, sure. challenging yeah 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 i mean sometimes you're gonna have a few people who are a bit upset about <laughs> yeah. that well that's that's just that's just life isn't it there's always going to be someone upset about something yeah for sure yeah <laughs> i mean christ yeah like we were talking about that on twitter the other day the responses to uh, any other name like it's just like you've lost a fan it's like we didn't want you as a fucking fan to begin with well yeah i mean it's the reality of any artist yeah that you, you know or anyone who's outspoken in any kind of way 100 percent, yeah there's no way that you can keep everybody happy and i think there's a certain instinctive part of every every of most people that you want to keep people happy i mean why mm. would you not want to keep people happy unless you were a columnist for news corp or something like yeah. where where you thrive on that that conflict uh, most artists just want to do their own thing and yeah. and try and be honest in the way that they express what they're doing and mm. i mean you do end up particularly in this kind of hyper communication world of, of social media, being very aware when people are unhappy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, so I want to kind of trace it back and click into the moment where you first got interested and kind of involved with music. So you're a, you're a mountain kid originally. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how music kind of played into that. I mean, yeah, look, I, I don't really have a great... You know, family background and music. Obviously, you look back the generations, and you know, I've got great grandparents who sitting there in front of a sepia toned photograph with them uh, holding violins or whatnot. But I certainly right. don't have like parents and grandparents who were in the music industry. Yeah, the closest I can think of is my dad. You know, was a big jazz head. He had mm. a lot of jazz records, uh, but I didn't really have a very conscious awareness of those jazz records other than they were dad's jazz records sure yeah 
it's hard to say that they didn't play a, an unconscious role. And I mean, my brother was a bit very passionate about music too, so he had a big influence there. But I didn't really do anything beyond the recorder in school. I was kicked out of the school choir. Oh, really? Our school choir was a, it was a great kind of source of school pride. We yeah, used to right. go to the various Steadfords and win them. People would always comment on our lovely red and blue school uniforms. <laughs> um, but, you know, our school choir teacher was quite a, you know, she was super uh, passionate, very enthusiastic, took the job very seriously, and right. that's when I got the tap on the shoulder. See you later. Um, what, so, what did you do? Oh, probably sung like a tortured cat. Right? I mean, it's, I she's probably had every, every, I mean, she probably only kept me in there before that out of some sort of charity. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, that's fair enough, but it certainly has stayed in my memory. But, um, yeah, I was into graffiti. I was into uh, hip hop culture and mm. words turned into, I mean, I was into writing rhymes as a, you know, eight year old, nine year old with a friend. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We, we were writing weird nursery rhymes and, you know, that was fun at the time and I think I've always been interested in words. I've always liked writing and creating cards, you know, for sure. families. I've yeah, yeah. Up. And in a funny way, they're in isolation, just quirky little things that young people do, but as you look back, you, you, can, you can definitely see the thread. There's a link there, there's a chain mm. that kind of doesn't necessarily reveal itself immediately but I think it it took coming into contact with you know some like-minded people who both shared political views and 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 curiosities with a sense of initiative to just make our own version of of music yeah that was raw and lo-fi and electronic for the most part, and uh, yeah. that, that that opened a door, and once we had uh, some sort of a sign of approval or some sort of a, any anything that we could latch on to that gave us a, a, it was a motivating force to continue on, we used that and and soaked that dry, you know, we, yeah. we rinsed every little, every little vague sign of approval as a, as a kind of I don't know, like a propelling force. So, you know, I, for an example, you know, like we put on, we did these low-key compilations when we first started, yeah, and right. our views were not national. They were, let alone international. They were very local. They were yeah. in a west. Let's just try and do a party and see if people come along. And you know, people came along. So that was this latch that we held on to okay cool this is a sign that we should keep doing it. and everything became this sign to keep doing it, it was never like a we have a, an end goal in mind let's just hold on tightly to this possibility of it becoming serious but never talking about being serious just just holding on to some sort of unspoken hope that uh that, you, that we could justify spending more time. And then that yeah. turned into, you know, putting releases out and those things selling out. And, and then, you know, eventually The Herd releasing Scallops and then we got some national radio play. Yeah. And those all those little things, they're all very small in isolation, but they're all just um, steps. And um, each time we, um, we just kept on pursuing them. And I think that by that alone, we learned how to write. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
You mentioned kind of the infatuation with words growing up and stuff like that. Where did performing kind of come into it, apart from the choir stuff? Like, do you remember the first kind of gig of any description that you played? Like, were you in high school, or was it a bit later on? Uh, the first gig that, I mean, it wasn't really performing. I mean, we DJed, but... Yeah. Um, the first thing that I helped put on was with a friend of mine from school, Schwoza. 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 We did a, a DJ gig at the Katoomba um, Community Centre, I think it's called. Yeah, wow. And we hired someone new, a band, who was a hard rock band. Mm. They played for a case of beer, I think it was. <laughs> I mean, we, we, you know, I think we were probably 15 years old or 14 yeah, years old. Yeah, oh shit. So we, we didn't know anything. Like, yeah. And our parents were the security. <laughs> That's and, even uh, better. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we were the DJs. And the, the thing that we put together was a poster that, I guess it was probably something that, was, it probably had a bit of influence from what we saw as what you did in Sydney at clubs. And my yeah. brother was doing, was at least somehow involved in the, the nightclub scene in Sydney. But it wasn't, yeah. wasn't full on dance music, it was more like Britpop. Right, yeah, sure. So he did these nights like Obvious, and the night was called Obvious. And um, so we did a, 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 an event called, I can't remember what the name was, but we had all the bands listed that we were going to play. You know, right. like, um, what are they called? Like Rollercoaster, you know Rollercoaster, those old... Oh, shit, know, there yeah. Was, there was old nights that used to run in Sydney, and heaps. there was heaps of them in the late 90s and 2000s where... They would just list all Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, yeah, Primus, yeah. Uh, I remember those posters. Radiohead, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would be like, "This is the music we're going to play," and yeah. we did that, and and we had our DJ names, and <laughs> you know, that was it. So, what was on your poster? Yeah, so we hand drew it, and it was just all the bands that we were playing, and it had a kind of logo type thing in there, and I think my DJ name was Radio Rosie, <laughs> and um, Schwaz's was something else. I can't remember what his was, but far more kind of normal for a 15 year old boy than Rodeo Rosie but where did that come from I have no idea (laughs) it wasn't a career it was like let's put on a party and let's come up with a name and I think I was just I was taking the piss but yeah I've still got the the poster art and there's Rodeo Rosie there I'm like that's me that's you (laughs) that's fantastic well when did when did Rodeo Rosie become Earth Boy when did that I I think Rodeo Rosie lasted one night (laughs) (laughs) Earthboy was just a dumb email account that just turned in, became went from uh, a muck around with friends at parties to, yeah. well, this is the name that I've got, and then started being billed, and it was a long time later that things got serious, and by then it was, I couldn't be bothered <laughs> thinking about changing it. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was a pretty naff name, but, you know. Stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, it's still there. Whenever I say, oh, it's a shit name to people... Just because I think, Earth Boy, what, what is it? What does what that even it? mean? Earth yeah. Boy, it sounds like, and I mean, of course, there's the, you know, the, the um, cartoon character too. People are like, no, it's cool, it's great. And I guess it's because people maybe associate all of, I mean, that's what you do, you associate the artistic output and that becomes what the name means. And I'm, yeah. I mean, that's the only reason that people don't laugh at me, I think. Yeah. I hope. Your fingers crossed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's probably the reason they laugh at me too, but... I'm just ignoring that. Yeah, of course. Fuck it. <laughs> so, were you performing live and were you, like, rapping and stuff like that before the herd started? Like, was that kind yeah, of a for thing? Sure. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I was mucking around with friends for quite some time before yeah. that. And I was in a whole band before that. With really? Called Explanatory. Okay. And Explanatory was made up of me and Schwozer and my friend Nug. We had a DJ, Alf, and then we had Hermitude. 
playing bass and drums. No shit. Gusto on drums. Yeah. And his sister Asia was on bass. So it was a six piece. Wow, cool. What kind Seven of stuff piece. were you guys playing? Uh, jazz fusion hip hop. Interesting. <laughs> right. Jazz fusion. That sounds terrible even saying that. I can't <laughs> believe that came out of my mouth. But they were like a, they were an instrumental jazz group. That's where they started. It was kind of Latin influenced jazz and yeah. funk. Um, up in the mountains they both come from musical families and I think it was Schwarzer maybe who had the idea hey why don't you because I was working with Schwarzer on electronic based sample or sample based hip hop yeah say electronic means not like play by live band yeah yeah and uh, yeah we just joined forces and so we became a band that's cool we put out an EP we we recorded another one but then um, kind of broke up before that EP came out right sure when was the first show you played with those guys? Oh, up in the mountains. Oh, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was down in Sydney. I'm not sure. It was really... I mean, it was cafe style, like yeah, playing yeah. in the corner of a cafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there much of a scene up in Blue Mountains, or was it one of those kind of things where you kind of had to make your own scene? Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I, if there was, I certainly wasn't aware of it, and mm. maybe that just shows that I was not across bands who were cooking and then moved down to Sydney but when I was growing up there was no bands coming out of the mountains Mm. in fact the only one that I can remember was or at least that 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 came from there and one of the only ones that I can remember is the Vaughns who novelty who farted who farted yes indeed and that was uh, as as novelty as it was it was kind of a big deal in the area yeah because they're like oh these guys Oh, I didn't care about oh the song's a joke and I mean truth be told I was probably 16 years old so or 15 I'm, even longer it's a funny song yeah Christ that's like 95 96 yeah so as, as a young as a young you know male yeah who thought it was actually funny anyway yeah, yeah. so I didn't really have that kind of highbrow <laughs> approach to it why would you do that song yeah so yeah they were they were kind of the, the, um, the talk of the town so to speak and uh, but no, there wasn't that much of a scene in the mountains that mm. I was aware of, and um, that was something that came uh, a little bit later. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's there's certainly been a great cross section of artists that have come from the mountains since. Yeah, sure, definitely. Mm. And you still try and get back up there as much as you can when you play, or? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I've still got all my old school friends there. Yeah, right. Um, my mum doesn't live there anymore, so I don't mm. go and visit her up there. So that's really one of those, you know, those things that disconnects you from an area. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, so much of yeah, the the connection we have with our past is is generally based on, on convenience when it all boils down to it. Mm. You know, your job or where you live or your family's there, yeah. or whatever it may be. It's not that you're. I've got this link to this place, so I'm going to keep going back there. No, you're not going back there and staying in a hotel or yeah. or whatnot in order to just visit it. But, you know, it's it's etched in my um, in my soul. Yeah. The, the back streets, the the hills, the the bushwalks, the shops that have opened and closed, mm. the, the tapestry of the place, the personality of the place. I mean, it's just... As soon as you go back there, it's like old socks, you know. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Just, you just remember everything. Yeah, of course. It's like when you, it's like when you meet up with old friends who you have no real day to day link with. Sure. You, yeah. you know, when you you lose touch with someone and it becomes a bit awkward. Mm. Well, I feel like with school friends, you generally, it's a lot easier than with adult friends. Yeah. Adult friends, you can 
work with for a while, whatever, your friends hang out, whatever, mm. but you can easily say goodbye. School friends, it's almost like you don't even need to maintain things sometimes, it's just, but when you go back, there's a certain kind of ease about it. And I think it just, I can't completely make sense of it other than to think that it's just all of those enforced hours that you spent with these people at school and yeah. you didn't think, oh, let's hang out. You yeah. just had to. And so it's almost become, they're so familiar. But yeah, I mean, I, not that I catch up with old friends, but mm. but yeah, there's something about the mountains for sure. Yeah, definitely. At what point does the herd uh, kind of come into the play? We're talking like late 90s here? Uh, the herd started in 2001. Right, right. Yeah, so, we, so you'd been you'd been like performing for a while at this mm, point. Yeah, yeah. And you moved and you'd moved to Sydney. Uh yeah. So I moved in the late nineties to study at uni. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, finished school and and headed there and yeah, you know, came into contact by chance with people like Kenny and Caho and um, Simon Fellows and you know a few of those people who all ended up being part of the herd once. Yeah, we collaborated a few times and. Decided to start a band. Yeah. Yeah. How many were in the herd originally? Was it was it the seven of you? Or? It was a bit more loose than that. There was probably... It was more like a collective. It really... Yeah. It, it kind of was because there was a number of people who contributed to those records who weren't really in the group. Right. Um, there was a couple of them who maybe played the odd live show. We were a bit fluid. Mm. And we developed out of a improv electronic group where we, you know... the we used to wear bloody overalls. Oh, wow. You know, played vibes on a summer's day, those kind of festivals. Yeah, but it yeah, was just yeah. completely improv. Kenny Spear, once again, founder of Elephant Tracks, he created this software called Dace. And it he was created like, the software? Yeah, and it, no was, shit. it was basically live jamming software. So everyone, all the guys had their own laptops, and they would just, like, drop samples in or play stuff all together. Holy and then you'd shit. have me and Battler and maybe um, Simon and a girl called Megan, who's now an actor singing and we had Dale on bass and yeah, so yeah. it became this it was when it was good it was really quite wow. um, invigorating when it was bad it was just <laughs> really messy jamming oh man and like early 2000s it would have been chunky laptops too oh yeah yeah for sure <laughs> no I mean you know some of those gigs I'm, I'm pretty sure that we brought towers along you know like a, <laughs> oh a, had a like a whole hard tower. drive yeah. holy shit you'd be dragging that out of the back of the car oh man that's full on what was the first herd show do you remember that um, oh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't totally know. I mean, it would have been a warehouse party, I reckon. Sure, yeah. Probably like Hibernian House or somewhere like that. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we started from warehouses. Mm. Yeah. Talking to you was, like, pretty different to the way I talk to uh, other musicians. Like, they usually just, like, get through on the pubs and stuff like that. But, like, building up, like, a reputation through, like, those parties that you were putting on and, you know, nightclub nights and stuff like that. Is that kind of ingrained in you now as well, that kind of mentality? Like... I think it was just, as a party, let's play. I mean... Yeah. We didn't really have any preference for any. I mean, we were still playing places like the Hopetown and, mm. you know, we're still part of that pub culture even though you know we were very different to a lot i mean i think that we were refreshing i think for some of those pub owners even though they were very much rock and roll people yeah because that was the the bread and butter Mm. i think that they appreciated one night a week being a bit different yeah so yeah you know i mean the thing that differentiated us i think is that and not to say that bands aren't going out there and creating their own opportunities i think they always are yeah but 
I think for us that was there was just absolutely zero expectation that anyone would come along at all. Yeah. So every gig that we were doing, apart from maybe the odd festival, we just assumed that we'd do it all. Mm. Oh, okay, we're going to Melbourne. Okay, let's organise a gig. Yeah. It wasn't like oh let's let's do these gigs and then let's put a demo together and try and get signed. We never even discussed that. It never even came up. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Never tried to, oh, let's do some great live shows and invite some booking agents. Never even <laughs> thought about that. No, of course not. A booking not. agent came and knocked on our door. We were like, there wasn't even something. Yeah, what do it, you do? Yeah. yeah. It didn't occur to yeah. us. We, we already do that. We don't need you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I yeah. Mean, um, but, obviously, if they're an essential part of the the success of an artist oh, it's yeah. just that we didn't know so of course yeah, yeah. I mean and, and emerging at that point as well it's a very interesting time for Australian hip hop because like the hoods are like barely on the radar at this point you know 1200 are like the only act with a semblance of a you know any kind of commercial recognition like they would have been like the first like Australian hip hop act that I recognise as like Oh, like Australians do that stuff as mm. well. When you were coming up, what kind of stuff was happening in the scene? Like, were you paying attention to that sort of stuff, or were you just like, we're just doing our own thing? I always identified with the hip hop scene. Yeah. Um, some other, you know, members of the Elephant Tracks Collective and the Herd, mm. they didn't really come from that background. Yeah. So it wasn't such a big deal to them. But I had always had a huge amount of respect and uh, reverence for all of the guys that had come before us yeah sure guys and girls that had come before us so uh, it was a big deal to me and, you know I was very tuned into um, where 1200 techniques stood in the scheme of things yeah I tried to have a lot of integrity towards the culture mm. and what we did but of course you know I'm working with a bunch of different people and yeah we're creatively just coming up with whatever it may be we don't really I, I certainly didn't know exactly what I was doing so we weren't making music that a lot of that scene was really feeling yeah. was really part of the hip-hop scene. So that was a, there was a few, uh, you know, in those days there was there was definitely a, a few factions of the community that were they saw things differently and didn't necessarily feel like we were part of it. There was an interesting time for the hip-hop community here mm. in general because yeah. it was fairly uh, small and um, very community-minded. It wasn't necessarily friendly, but it was very mm-hmm. community-minded. Did you did you feel like because of that you and the herd kind of had something to prove to those people? Oh, or? for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always felt that. Yeah, but that's part of hip hop culture. You, mm. you know, that's why there's a battling culture in hip hop. That's why there's a competitive streak in um, graph culture. Like it's very competitive culture, but it's also you know there's a lot of good that can come from that. So you do want to be able to represent. You do want to be able to hold your own mm. so with that in mind yeah you do want to prove yourself a bit yeah sure. and I was young and um, why wouldn't you you, you, you yeah. kind of want to assert yourself and be able to say hey I'm this person and you, when you're not even sure that you're that person yourself you got to try extra hard to you know to work on that <laughs> yeah so definitely it was fascinating you know seeing things go from barely anyone going to shows except for if there was some American hip hop artist mm. playing to you know, show, small shows selling out to bigger and bigger. I mean, it's it was a really vibrant time for sure. Yeah, definitely. 
And so when the herd started getting, you know, that attention, like you mentioned, like getting the the radio play and like people coming along to those shows and you know slowly selling those out, did you did it feel like, oh well, finally, you know, th- what we're doing is getting the recognition, you know, or was it just like, oh, what, what's going on here, you know, we weren't yeah. we weren't expecting it. The latter. I mean, it was just holy shit. Yeah. You know, once things started getting successful on on a small level, yeah. You know, it was just oh wow that's going to give us all the more impetus to keep on going. Mm. There was no sort of sense of entitlement to that that success. Yeah. It was just a uh, excitement. It was a great feeling and I think it set up a model that Elephant Tracks has tried to follow and you can follow it to a certain extent and that is building very slowly rather than trying to do what I think a lot of the rest of, a lot of the industry um you know, believes his gospel, and that is set everything up until there's this great kind of momentum. Yeah. And then you sign deals, and you do everything. And you try and get a number one record. You do all those sorts of things that try and bring everything to a crescendo. Yeah. Actually, our model was completely on a different wave. It was all about one little step at a time, and I've seen that work amazingly with some artists and other artists. Look, the industry doesn't come up with these. Um, philosophies because they're accidental they come up with them because they tried and tested they work yeah you get a number one record by getting this kind of groundswell of excitement in this artist yeah the reality is that's a fantastic thing but then it goes what what next and that's where you get this crazy idea of well the second album syndrome because because you've done all this you followed this philosophy through to its natural conclusion and you either have a very special artist come up and top that mm. or that artist starts to drift off and for most artists who are, who are just you know real people you experience this great kind of you know tidal wave of emotion where yeah. you've got all this validation in what you're doing so you have a sense of importance self-importance but yeah. also just importance because everyone around you is telling you they're fantastic then all of a sudden that's all gone. I mean, that's a huge thing for any human to deal with. Yeah, like, big time. You th- you're thrown around a lot by that. Now, Elephant Tracks, we never had that luxury. It was just a slow build. And we've seen it with acts like Horror Show, who've come along a lot, many years after we started. But yeah. they've done the same thing. they built from the ground up. And they're, you see it because they don't need to have a huge hit to have a sustainable career. In fact, mm. they've n- arguably never had a hit. Yeah. And if you look at it cold, with, uh, you know against cold hard figures mm. it's just a fact they've never had anything close to a hit yeah. yet they'll sell out a thousand people in a lot of cities because there's this unshakable loyalty to them yeah that comes from this very genuine connection with the lyricism and the chemistry between Adda and Nick and when you're able to build things slowly that's a recipe for a long career mm. if you build things up really quickly you've got to be amazing to follow yeah. that up yeah 100% or lucky. <laughs> that too. That, that definitely does play into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when it came to branching out into to solo stuff, like, was that something that was always in the back of your mind when you were working with the herd, or do you just working on stuff where you're just like, I don't think this would work with those guys, I'll just, you know, push it in my own direction? Yeah, I, I started thinking about my solo stuff after Explanatory had, we hadn't stopped working, but, um, you know, I think it's just an inevitable thing in a creative. Uh, environment, you know, you're working with other people, and oh, all of a sudden you realise that maybe different people's temperaments aren't conducive to having a good mm. creative relationship. So, mm, mm. you know, we fought and we bickered, and 
I was thinking, shit, this would be easier if I just did it myself. And so I was working with Gusto, or at least in the preliminary stages of starting to work, yeah. before the Heard record came out. So The I first Heard record. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I didn't release my first solo album until like 2004. Yeah. Or sometime around then, but... Yeah, it was um, like four Distant Sense. Yeah. yeah, but I had uh, started my first song with Gusto in 2001, I think. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no pressing need to put a record out. There was no audience. Mm. So I just worked at it as I went. Do you remember performing, like, just under your own name for the first time? Was that was there a pressure on that, considering, you know, like, all the stuff you'd done before, you know, been surrounded by other people, you know, with the collective of The Herd and, mm. you know, with Explanatory before that? And even even your old mate from high school, you know? Like, yeah. Oh, I, I, you know, probably just performed badly, I <laughs> it's probably a fair assessment <laughs> but um, these I, things you know, happen for the first few years of playing my solo capacity Ozzy Butler had been working on a few things and we had a really good thing going on so yeah. we just performed you know a few of his songs and a bunch yeah. of mine and you know we kept on going around the country and touring so I think it gave him a good excuse to continuously be busy yeah. despite not releasing solo stuff at least for those first few years Yeah, and it gave me great help by having such a good and strong vocal presence in support of my show Yeah. so you know he was he is still but he always was a really clever lyricist Yeah. you know a, a, a really interesting poet so he was always a person that I was happy to be associated with and yeah. I felt like he brought a huge amount to the show. So in some ways I, I've always been surrounded by people. Yeah, sure. And, and later on, uh, uh, Jane and Tyrrell plays in, into yep. it uh, big big time as well, you know, joining the herd and, you know, kind of being a staple of your solo shows as well. How did you guys connect for the first time? I think we just got along. You know, there was a point where it didn't make sense for Ozzy to be in the show anymore. He was doing more and more stuff with astronomy class. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd been working with Jane for quite a while in just a creative context, working on herd records and, well, not so much, because I think it was soon after. I mean, no, I know, we had worked on, um, you know, things like We Get Around. Yeah. You know, she came in and did some backing vocals and and some melody stuff on that. And um, I think... It was just a, just a chemistry thing. Just you know, liked hanging out. Hey, let's go play some songs. It wasn't mm. really much more than that. Yeah, <laughs> I guess throughout the last decade, the herd definitely like really built up a solid reputation. You know, going from that small triple J rotation to like pretty high rotation stuff. You know, getting hottest one hundred features, and you know, like consequently, like garnering a pretty solid reputation. Just from your perspective, at what point, like, was there a, a show or a tour or anything along those lines where you thought, fuck, the herd has, like, done it, we've fucking, we've made it, you know what I mean? Was there any kind of point of that along the way? I never think of it as making it, mm. because every creative endeavour is slightly sobered by the pressing urgency to try and do the next one. Yeah, sure. So whenever you're sitting there celebrating a moment in time it's maybe just a something that unconsciously feeds into your own confidence mm. so you sit there and feel like you're able to go and do it again and you feel confident to be able to pull it off and that is something it's like a, an injection of confidence but it's not really like there was ever a, a line where we crossed mm. into making it yeah it was always just the fear of dropping the ball so yeah it's just a creative thing I think where you never can relax for too long yeah so yeah I think instead of 
framing it in the promised land of having made it, I mm. think it's more relevant that we just had a bit more swagger in our step. Yeah. So where do you think that kind of came into Probably play? Probably around 2005. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it was also maybe it could have even been the second album where much to our surprise a station like triple j played a song like 77 percent. oh yeah well that's where i come in you mm-hmm. know i would have been about 12 or 13 when i heard that on the in the hottest 100 it's like what the fuck is this you know yeah i didn't even know like the context of like the situation you mm-hmm. know so uh, yeah i definitely kind of opened up my eyes kind of politically you know like i think we've we filled a big void in australian music where we were making music that was uh, relevant enough to fit into the main lane of hip-hop. And, yeah. and we, we fitted into that the cultural context, even though we were kind of outsiders. But we are also very outspoken. Mm. And I'm sure there would have been people out there that could have said what we were saying better. But for whatever reason it is that Australian music has, for the most part, shied away from being outspoken... It wasn't any different then. And, yeah. you know, there were bands that were doing it. There were, there's always been bands that do it. And yeah. Particularly in the underground. But you don't hear about bands from the underground in a kind of a- anything remotely mainstream. And I don't think they yeah. heard it was ever mainstream, but we were remotely mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't see many acts that really have a stranglehold on the music industry. Yeah. And what I mean by that is bigger acts yeah. taking risks like that. It's too yeah. dangerous. They're playing to their audience and um, I, I would say that it, it's just very conservative Australian music is generally very conservative it can be 100% but politically speaking particularly yeah I mean if I think there are moments like the priest says doing my people yeah which it's genius because it's a Trojan horse it's a song that is clearly political but at the same time you can even see that they were very mindful about not being too direct about yeah. that stuff because there's certain lyrics in there that they, you know, I could imagine Julian sitting there going, this doesn't quite link in with the Asylum Seeker thing, but, yeah. but it served the purpose of feeding the masses yeah, this yeah, amazing yeah. song. There hasn't been many acts that have had that kind of level of profile that have dipped their toes in. Mm. Maybe Blinking Brown are another one that I had a moment yeah. there for a few years where they were making this great rebellious music yeah. and, and playing to these... Absolutely ginormous audiences. Yeah, absolutely. And Powderfinger have dipped their toes in as well. Yeah. So there has been bands that have tried to cover some of this stuff, but it's... it's but there was it's always more, a constant for you guys. It's yeah. the exception to the rule, whereas us, we, we in the in the end, actually, when we got to the most recent record, yeah, Future Shade, it got almost to the... I mean, we still had very political songs on that record, but yeah. it almost got to the point where we were sitting there going, well, if we make another bunch of political songs mm. it feels like it's so predictable it, yeah. it got to that point where we knew that that was a big part of our yeah. music and it, it's not that it goes away no but uh it, it was it was our focus yeah. we, we did not have anyone telling us not to do it yeah there was that timeline i guess like if you wanted to kind of explain musically what was going on with australian politics in the 2000s you could go burn down the parliament and then 77 percent, and then you know the king is dead you know you've got that kind of subset of songs where it just like basically sums up what was going on you know like i guess and and at, point, at those points all those songs were very timely very relevant so i guess they're kind of like they're fucking great songs as well but you can also look at them in that time capture context and just be like oh shit i remember that happened fucking mm. hell you know 
Yeah, I think some people say that use that as a reason to not comment and not to be uh, reflecting the times, and that is mm. they don't want their music to date. And I just think, oh, your music's going to date most of the time anyway. Yeah, exactly. Why would you not try and reflect the times? That's all. That's what an artist must do. Yeah. And if you're going to make a mistake, which you're going to do anyway, well, why would you put these roadblocks in front of yourself? Uh, I mean, it's simplifying it. I wouldn't pretend to imply that an artist has no reason to try and temper some of their political instincts or whatnot. Sure, sure maybe there is a time and a place to be a bit calculated about it, but mm. for the most part, if that's the case, we will, <laughs> most Australian artists are way too calculated. Yeah. It's just no, too definitely. fearful, I think. Yeah. One of the last times that I saw you play uh, is something I still count as one of the best shows I've ever been to, and that was at the City Recital Hall uh, with you uh, on tour with Paul Kelly. Now, I can only imagine, like, it, you'd, be, you'd be quite similar to me in that you, can't, you would have grown up being, like, very aware of Paul Kelly as, you know, that icon and, mm. you know, kind of... I, I, I think Archie Roach once described him as, you know, the, the bard of Australia, you know, and I can only imagine, like, when that whole thing came up, you are just like... Is, is this actually happening? Like, what the fuck? Like, mm. it, you you know, you know, I don't play guitar or anything, right? You know, like, yeah. Talk us through like that tour coming together. My manager Greg, who you know, he's a friend, yeah. first and foremost, but yeah, he suggested it, and I think the agent and or Paul's management balked at first, and then next day came back and like, actually, this kind of this is a this could work, yeah. And she'd worked with Paul previously. Yeah, I had. On a, we'd worked on some sort of some things, and we'd we'd done the uh, tour with Kev Carmody. Yeah, as as my role in the herd. So we'd already had a little bit of form. That was just a you know a privilege that could have been a train wreck. I think it's a testament to PK that he is able to do something like that, and it's not booed out of the the venue. Yeah, and yeah. So all credit to him. I mean, I tailored my show to try and make it work for you know farmers in Gladstone and you know shows in these regional towns yeah, yeah. that had no interest in me let alone awareness so you know that was a really interesting creative challenge but really all kudos has to go to, to PK it's just him lending a little bit of his light onto yeah. my music that's that's the way I see that too. there's this one point towards the end of the show I remember uh, Paul was playing Deeper Water. And I remember just looking off to the side and seeing you there with your daughter in your arms. And it kind of made me think, like, this whole thing can be so transcendent. You know, you can it can get passed down from, you know, generation to generation, etc., etc. Mm. Like, uh, I don't know, has your daughter shown interest in, in music or does she kind of have any comprehension of what it is that you do yet? Oh, yeah, but, you know, not really. You know, she's... <laughs> She engages with yeah. it. and She's three now? She's two. Two, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's inevitable that she'll find my music <laughs> a bit daggy. Yeah, of um, course, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's other times where she's like, I like daddy music. <laughs> and um, so like, oh, this is cute. No, 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 tell me more. Tell me more. T- say it again. She does what she wants. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I'm under no illusion that 
if she's got the choice between some kids' music and my music. Yeah. Kids' music every day. Oh, yeah. yeah so Can't compete with Wheels on the Bus at that age. Oh, Wheels on the Bus is a, is a, uh, a massive hit yeah, in yeah. our household. <laughs> she has appalling taste. Yeah. <laughs> but I did just say that she liked my music, so... Yeah, then, yeah. She, yeah she who does, does that say more about? Taste. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you've kind of been away from performing for a little while. I think the last time I saw you perform was opening for The Roots at the Horden, mm-hmm. which was fucking great show as well are you more like focused towards the the business side of things now and helping out these other acts etc or i don't know is it, is it something that you want to get back into uh i mean yeah i mean you're opening up a can by that question <laughs> i mean i've always come into the music industry as an artist first and foremost yeah there's no question um i get a lot of joy out of seeing close friends like hermitude develop and i take the role in advising and managing them very seriously. Yeah. And yeah, that does sometimes suffocate my week and and take a lot of my available hours. But if I didn't do it and I wasn't able to be working with them, I'd be uh, in a much worse place. So there's really no choice there. Yeah. And uh, it's it's such a a completely uh, exhilarating thing seeing them succeed so well after so many years that yeah. that I yeah I, I have no uh, reservations at all but I mean I also don't, don't uh, pretend that I've got into this industry to be in the business mm. um, as a priority my priority is being in the business as an artist yeah and it's just lucky that uh, you know I have learnt to enjoy so much about the business also a lot of aspects about the business which I happily never see or hear about again but um, I've also had a two year old that I have zero interest in letting have her grow up without me being present yeah of course I have a hundred percent commitment to being available and around and in some ways it's a blessing I think that I haven't been on the road every weekend as she's growing up because you work during the week you're on the road on the weekend that's the musician that's the, that's been my lifestyle from as soon as I got busy with music was working the business all week and then tour almost every weekend yeah of course so you're not around and that's not something that I would be uh, feeling good about at all with a young kid and I certainly don't want to be one of those fathers that's, yeah. not, that's not there irrespective of for what reason yeah so um, I'm still working mm. and um and I've got a, a whole lot of new music that's just about to start walking into release mode. So oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's been a while. Something to look forward to then. Hmm. Excellent. Um, all right, so we'll wrap it up here. But uh, before I do that, I ask this of all my guests, and now it is your turn, buddy. I want to know about your best and worst gig experiences as a performer. Feel free to start on either or. What happens if they're all the same? Oh, shit. That's an interesting one. I've never actually had that before. Hit me. I can't isolate it down to one. It was either one of the, the launches of the Herd Summerland record or my Spitshine record. Yeah. Um, both of them were at the Metro. Both of them were sold out. Both of them were huge, sort of exciting things for us. Yeah. And both of them were also coming off the back of an, a very exhausting build up that 
meant that by the night I was just mentally spent. Oh shit! Yeah. And you know, you so you weren't ready. You're just like peering out the curtain. It's just like, oh fuck. Well, just sort of, you know, still getting messages. People not on the door list. Oh or, god. You know, various different things. So it was like the manager side of things fucking with you as well. Kind of. Yeah. 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 So you you both got the moment you've been working so hard on for so many years, but it's. Mm-hmm compromised by being so fully invested in every aspect of this of music that you can't enjoy that moment you can't just walk in as an artist experience as an artist walk out as an artist yeah usually the only times that i've had that until recently where i've really had huge support network like from my manager greg and yeah yeah from people around me i mean i've always had a support network but not in a way that hopefully i provide to my artists and other you know other artists might get so sometimes it would be festivals right. where, yeah, yeah. where you really can be like, yeah, wow, I don't have to worry about all this stuff. Mm. So I would say that I've had the, you know, the bittersweet privilege of playing sold-out shows at the Metro and hometown gigs yeah, yeah. whilst being stressed out of my eyeballs, you know, <laughs> good or bad. Yeah. There's a new single, uh, Any Other Name, uh, which you feature on, uh, Horror Show and Thelma Plum and Chimbla all feature on that track as well. Uh, definitely go download that. Uh, proceeds are going to... Proceeds go to Indigenous X, which is yeah, an yeah. Indigenous-run media organisation that really amplifies Indigenous voices mm-hmm. in a time where funding is getting cut. Um, to really vital services, yeah, and they really amplify voices from across the community, and um, they do really innovative stuff on on Twitter and Facebook, and yeah, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of theirs. I think they're uh, the the right kind of you know media organisation for the times, yeah. And so yeah, I'm really very keen to have people go and um, support Indigenous exits. Yeah, it's really well run. Fantastic. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to plug? My first single is going to come out in, in October. So oh, sweet. That's, fantastic. That's all coming. So there's a new record coming as well. Uh-huh. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Tim, thank you so much for your time, man. Greatly appreciated. I'm David James Young, and all my friends are on Barber. This has been a David James Young Writes production. For more information, visit davidjamesyoung.com.